This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony, the French Connection Nelson, and in the virtual studio, my usual co-host, Flick Ford, is taking a well-deserved week off. So I am joined by our very special guest stars, Emma, a clockwork orange Westwood. <laughs> oh god now now i forget all the phrases from it um any outy a bit of ludwig ludwig von Va- van a, a bit of the old whatever. ludwig van ludwig van that's it <laughs> oh god put me on the spot and i forgot the french connection was 1971 just shows that what a great year it was oh it, it gets better and uh, and also in the studio with us joining us for the first time in a while we are delighted to have Lee Bedknobs and Broomsticks Gambon. Oh, that's a nice choice. And this is definitely the age of not believing. <laughs> it's well, not really. It's, it should be the age of believing. Maybe. <laughs> Too much believing. Um, yeah. <laughs> welcome to the show, both of you. Now, in our long-awaited follow-up to a popular episode Emma and I did last year, we'll be hopping back into the Wayback Machine and spotlighting a trio of films turning 50 this year, all of which you can now watch at home. First, we will see Topol watching his daughters marry men he doesn't approve of in Norman Jewison's blockbuster musical Fiddler on the Roof. Then we'll meet a house full of women that Clint Eastwood might give his right leg to stay with in Don Siegel's dark Civil War morality drama The Beguiled. Spoiler. And the- <laughs> And then we will end with Walter Matthau looking for the perfect rich wife to kill in Elaine May's delightfully dark comedy, A New Leaf. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, before we hop into our reviews of our trio of films turning 50 this year, we felt it might be worth just giving a quick snapshot of what cinema in 1971 looked like. After the transitional year that was 1970, the last cultural vestiges of the 1960s were dwindling or being forced to adapt as shifting cultural attitudes, stifling conservative governments and increasing economic hardship started sending audiences in search of more thematic complexity and formal experimentation from their cinema. Amongst all this change, the highest grossing film of 1971 might have seemed like a throwback to the old but was the one film to most explicitly deal with the terror of this shifting landscape. And that was, of course, one of the films we'll be looking at tonight, Fiddler on the Roof. But the rest of the year's biggest hits, Tom Laughlin's Billy Jack, William Friedkin's The French Connection, which would go on to win five Oscars, including that year's Best Picture, Director and Actor for Gene Hackman, 
Robert Mulligan's Summer of 42, Sean Connery's last official Bond film, Guy Hamilton's Di uh, Diamonds Are Forever, Don Siegel's Dirty Harry, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show, Disney's animated live-action hybrid Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Daniel Mann's Willard, a horrific ode to a sweet boy and his pet rats, and Melvin Van Peebles' game-changing independent hit, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, are all, except for perhaps the Bond film and the Disney film, very indicative of the decade to come in terms of progressivism, naturalism, violence, provocation, mournful elegy, and new voices screaming to be heard. Today's Golden Globe Lifetime Achievement Award recipients both had big years in 1971. <laughs> Jane Fonda starred in her Oscar-winning role as a sex worker caught up in a murder conspiracy in Alan J. Pakula's thriller Clute. TV giant Norman Lear made his one and only feature film as director, the quit-smoking social satire Cold Turkey, which I realised is available on Stan. I didn't realise that. Oh. Joseph Losey won The Palm Door with Harold Pinter's adaptation of The Go-Between. John Schlesinger further pushed the sexual boundaries he'd already shoved with Midnight Cowboy with his BAFTA-sweeping hit, Sunday Bloody Sunday. And it was also the year Australia's own new wave of cinema exploded into life with Tim Burstall's Stork and Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. There was also Ted Kotcheff's Wake in Fright, but that would make more of a splash when rediscovered three decades later. It was also the year that the so-called blaxploitation genre, uh, subgenre of films really arrived, featuring African-Americans in powerful starring roles in front of and behind the camera in genre pictures for both quickie and major Hollywood studios, spearheaded by the aforementioned Sweet Sweetback's Badass song, and Gordon Parks' Shaft, which was actually one of the top 20 highest grossing films of the year. 1971 also saw the screen acting debuts of, among others, Kathy Bates, Keith Carradine, Jim Broadbent, Daniel Day-Lewis, Brian Cox, Stockard Channing, and Australia's own Jackie Weaver and Bruce Spence. 1971 also saw a lot of major actors making directorial debuts. Clint Eastwood with Play Misty For Me, Jack Nicholson with Drive, he said, Alan Arkin with Little Murders, and Peter Fonda with The Hired Hand, most tellingly as all of this was just two years after Hopper crossed the actor-director divide and blew up with Easy Rider. And speaking of young people making their first feature films with THX 1138 and a telly movie that we got in cinemas called Duel, 1971 saw the first films by two unknowns named George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Emma, you... Uh, oh, I have a bone in? to pick with you, Paul. You didn't mention um, Jack Lemmon's one and only... Oh, it's uh, Koch this year as well. Yes, yes and uh, that Lee and myself did a wonderful commentary on for Kino Lorber in the US, if anyone's interested in seeing Koch, with Walter Matthau, who is um, in one of the films we're talking about tonight, A New Leaf. Stunning. How did I miss that? Um, How did you miss that indeed? Um, yeah, because I was just reading about that yesterday, so it's weird. Um, we had the it was the first Monty, we had the first Monty Python film that year with and now for something completely different. The first Bruce Lee martial arts film, The Big Boss. We had Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Get Carter, Carnal Knowledge, A Bay of Blood, Bananas, Punishment Park, Vanishing well, yeah, Point. Yeah, it's just nuts. It's ten, like seriously nuts. Ten Rillington Place, a film I almost picked for tonight. Dalton Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun, which will be well known to any fans of Metallica's famous one video. 
Uh, the Andromeda Strain, The Panic in Needle Park, Countess Dracula, The Garden of the Finzi Contini's, A Touch of Zen, Vampirus Lesbos, and so, so many more. Did you, did you mention um, Pretty Maids All in a Row? I did not. A particular favour of yours <laughs> reviewed on this very show and a the couple devils. of years back. Did you, did you mention The Devils? Was, Ken Russell's was, The Devils? No. The Devils was 71? It was 71, yeah. How did I Pretty not sure. pick that? Let's because yes, the if Devils. I have a favourite film of 1971, it's out of that and one of the films we'll be talking about tonight. Oh, I think, I think I know why. I don't think it's easy to find on streaming platforms. No, but I'm, yeah, yeah it's weird that I did not, uh, that did not come up in my One of my favourites too, Paul. Yeah, yeah I, it's extraordinary and... Mm. I've only seen it on a on a VHS, and it it's still in pan and scan. It still blew me away. Uh, Lee, do you have any quick thoughts about film in seventy one before we? Well, launch? it's crazy. I think it's what you said is exactly right. That changing sort of face of cinema coming out of the um, studio system, um, the auteur sort of period, um, changing genres like genres shifting up a bit. So kind of things becoming outside of the classicist format and sort of reinventing itself. One genre that comes to mind that does it hugely is the Western. So, of course, there's revisionist Westerns prior to this one, but come the 70s, you don't really get that kind of classicist Hollywood-style Western really much anymore. It's all revisionist stuff. It's all different takes on things. Um, And you think of things like, you know, um, how horror starts to shift its focus from going from, you know, the sort of classic Gothic, um, you know, Eurocentric sort of stuff and coming into Mm -hmm. the, you know, um, the the modern landscapes and musicals start to change. And, yeah, there's a whole point of transition, I think. And it's interesting that we open with Fiddler on the Roof, which is the one I chose tonight, which is about the breakdown of tradition and that fear of change and that anxiety that change causes. So I think that's kind of a really good analogy of the, you know, the 70s, the ushering in of the 70s. I mm. could not agree more. Another genre that feels like it kicked off this year was like the the urban action movie yeah. as well. Mm. Which is a um, descendant of the Western, really. Yeah, that's kind of where the torch kind of gets handed yeah. over. Well, speaking of breaking with tradition and handing over torches, shall we uh, discuss our first film? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. Fiddler on the Roof was the 10th feature film directed by Norman Jewison. Based on the Broadway musical, set in a small village in pre-revolutionary Tsarist Russia, we find poor milkman Reb Reb Tevye and his wife, Golda, looking to marry off the eldest of their five daughters, Zaitel as per the direction of the local matchmaker, Yente. But when Zaitel refuses to marry the man that Yente has chosen, the elderly and amazingly named widowed butcher, Laser Wolf, because <laughs> Zaitel is in love with the poor but much more age-appropriate Taylor Motel, they ask permission to Tevye to get married, which Tevye grants to please her. But when his second daughter, Hodel, marry, uh, falls for revolutionary student Perchik, and his third daughter, Shava, finds herself attracted to, to the Christian Fiedka, Tevye is constantly forced to confront the staunch traditions that have kept his village together, especially now as the Tsar's troops threaten to evict Tevye and his community from their village, another threat to this Jewish community's long-cherished way of life. Now, Lee, once you found out that you couldn't pick Willard because it's unavailable locally, it is on <laughs> Blu-ray in America, however, you were very quick to choose this musical classic 
Now, as the author of the book, We Can Be Who We Are, Musicals of the 1970s, what is it about Fiddler on the Roof that makes it a match made in heaven for you? Um, I, it's, it's, I think it's a perfect film. I feel like it's, it's a beautiful adaptation, a successful adaptation. Um, I think it's well, um, structured as far as like its formula, it's, it's themes, um, you know, are a great through line and never interrupt the plot, which as you read out is quite simplistic, but says so much. Um, I think that's what really attracts me to it as well. Like it's a simplistic plot set against, uh, you know, political turmoil and the Russian revolution and um, uh, what's happening with the, the Jewish community at that time, being kind of pushed out of their homes and having to sort of be forced into making their worlds elsewhere. But within that, there's this really concentrated, beautiful story that are based on these old, wonderful stories, um, you know, that the musical was adapted from that are really focused on family. But then what it says about family, what it says about family um, unity and stuff, is revolutionary unto itself. And then what it sort of does is make a political statement that comes out at the perfect time. So if you go, if you just backtrack to the musical um, of Fiddler on the Roof, which comes out in the mid sixties, that's a transition um, culturally as well as what's happening on Broadway. So what's happening in musicals is rock and roll starts to become a big influence. Um, young people are starting to create their own shows. Off Broadway becomes a big thing. There's a breakdown of the traditional musical and the format of the traditional musical and coming into this kind of new wave. Um, and Fiddler sits at this kind of weird um, sort of, um, plateau there because it's sort of a very traditional um, sounding musical even though it's got like a very sort of uniquely ethnic Jewish sound um, uh, but it's also all about change and 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 transition so when you think about the next few years after Fiddler on the Roof makes a big splash on Broadway something like Hair opens and people mm. are like thrown by that going oh my god this is a youth-centric musical this is a musical that's a rock and roll score this is about you know the counterculture and it's not a traditional musical it's built around vignettes and you know uh, the, the songs rather than a streamlined solid plot um, whereas this one is that, but it's all about change. So the film adaptation with Norman Jewison um, with grabbing all to it as someone who's a very political filmmaker and incredibly leftist, um, and I had the pleasure of talking to him twice in depth and kept in touch um, for Jesus Christ Superstar as well. Very different musical. Like he, there's like a rock and roll opera, you know, and then he does this book musical with Viddler on the Roof. Um, just his stories and how he was hired was really interesting. So... <laughs> I think there was an assumption with his name that he was a Jewish guy, but he's not at all. <laughs> so he did, he took on this this work, which is a very Jewish story, but what he Canadian does Canadian Protestant, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and he opens up the landscape, shooting in, you know, the former former Yugoslav, um, building Anatevka, um, you know, casting people from the Jew the Yiddish theater. Um, you know, all this stuff is part and parcel of this perfect film. And just the scope of it, the look of it, it is really grim. Um, it's got this, you know, this this um trickling here and there of this this humor that I feel that Topple brings to this the performance of Tevier that kind of counters this whole darkness that's happening. So there's a whole tradition in musical theatre and musical film called the Whistling in the Dark musical where characters have to bring some kind of, you know, light in such an oppressive situation. And the 70s brings that out in, in you know, 
in draw in the droves because you've got musicals like Cabaret and Man of La Mancha and all these musicals that are all about really dark subject matter where characters have to kind of navigate their world through the world of dance or song um, and that's how it's expressed but it's a really yeah I think Fiddler on the Roof is just a successful film John Williams adapting the score is just magnificent his first Oscar win um, you know this is a man who actually comes from Richard Rogers as one of his mentors he was one of the musicians in the pit for South Pacific then comes on to do something like um, Fiddler on the Roof, really, really transforming that score. The score is essentially brilliant to start off with, but this is someone who knows filmic scoring. So when you see that film, like the swells and the musicality and all that, the orchestration is just stunning. Also, um, he's uh, the moment where um, uh, Zeitel's wedding is trashed um, by the Russian Tsarists. Uh, there's a piece of music, an incidental piece of music that Norman Jewison wanted written especially for that sequence at the end where Tevye is looking up to the heavens, you know, with his arms out saying why to God, who he frequently talks to throughout the movie. Um, and John Williams created this incredible piece of music, which does sound, if you're musically inclined and you know the score to Fiddler so well, very different from the rest of the score. However, it becomes the seed for Dracula a few years later for um, the the film that um, uh, Frank Langella starred in in 79. <laughs> which was a Broadway yeah. show itself, right? Correct, yeah. 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 Um, so, look, all the aspects, the casting, you know, Tevye, of course, Norma Crane is incredible as Goldie. Um, that really incredible sequence, uh, the Mazeltov sequence, with the which looks like a Mario Barber film, like, you know, when they're in the graveyard and the dream sequence, <laughs> just brilliant stuff. <laughs> um, and that also, was bonkers. Yeah, it's brilliant, though, and it, I think it works really well. Um, but Norman said, you know, the film, he, he's so humble. One of those directors is so humble, much like, you know, a lot of those guys from that 70s period, like De Palma and... Um, uh, um, John Carpenter, who I've spoke, both who I've spoken to, who were just so humble about their work, he was insanely like, you know, uh, you know, I was there, I did the job. It's like, okay, <laughs> you made these incredible works. It's just beautiful. But all right, Dale. What? Yeah, all right. <laughs> but what he what he does with Fiddler, I think, is there's like an effortlessness to its um, conception and the way it unfolds. I don't. There's nothing pretentious about it. Um, it does its job. Uh, it's rightfully as long as it is. I think, you know, a lot of modern audiences might go, oh, God, it goes for like 4,000 hours. Yeah, it should go for longer. No. But um, <laughs> it's, I think it's just, I think it's a perfect, perfect example of also the, the passing of the baton from, you know, classical cinema, um, the sort of roadshow releases that were happening, like the musicals of the, of the 60s where they were long and some were way too long for what they needed to be. And coming into the 70s sensibility where you have, downer ending um you know a grim palette like it's a bleak looking film um you know and and but just these incredible songs and perfect performances yeah i just think it's a pitch perfect political film and does say so much about change and the fear of change and also youth rebellion so you have the daughters mm. saying no to their father that's a big deal and each one is a progression of the ideologies that get um further and further away from tradition that tevye is trying to hold on to and i like the analogy of the um the fiddler you know, sitting um, on the roof of the shaky Before I throw the ball to Emma, I just want to say, like, I just wanted to ask you, is this kind of the last of the epic roadshow musicals? Like um, kind of the last couple, gasp? Well, kind of. I think there's things, well, there's things that sort of held on to it, like at the same time that were major flops, like Song of Norway, um, starring Florence Henderson. There was Star with Julie Andrews. Um, Sweet Charity comes out in 69, sort of on the cusp of it. Um, there were the, the two films that constantly get told, you know, the cause of 
the yeah. demise of the studio, which are um, 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 Hello Dolly and uh, Doctor Doolittle. Mm. But you know, they actually made money. Like people have to sort of, you know, revisit history. Mm. <laughs> but um, but the but yeah, I think you're right. Fiddler on the Roof is pretty much one of them. Absolutely, those sort of big scale um, film musicals because it's an interesting time as well. Because as far as there were flop, as much as there were flops, who were really massively successful ones at that period, like Oliver. Um, but thing when Sound and Music hit and became such a massive hit in, in 66, people thought studios thought you know musicals were still the way to go. But Fiddler comes out and becomes a massive success. So it's kind of like it's not about genre. It's probably about what story you're telling. Mm. Um, so I think there's there's absolute brilliance in Sound and Music and there's absolute brilliance in Fiddler on the Roof and in Oliver clearly Song of Norway just doesn't do it for people and clearly Hello Dolly, the casting of our, you know, Queen Barbara um, is wrong. She's too young. (laughs) There's all these elements, blah, blah, blah. But I think, yeah, I just think Fiddler really does set the motion of what happens in a very, very diverse decade of film musicals because there's, you know, around 200 of them and they're all insanely different. And even just looking at Norman Jewison himself as an artist, he makes two distinctly incredibly different musicals with Fiddler and Jesus Christ Superstar. So any moron who says all musicals are the same, all they have to do is look at one filmmaker and see those two films. And they go, ah, oh, they're actually very different. They wouldn't be listening to the show, those morons. We have intelligent <laughs> listeners. M, Fid- Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Echo That's up, buddy, buddy barking. Buddy, Lee's dog agrees. And Lee's finished talking, so now Buddy wants to talk. <laughs> He's a fan. Um, pretty much echoing what Lee said, I, I do think that there's um, something of a level of perfection in the storytelling here. Um, written by Jewish writers, written about Jewish experience and a somewhat religious Hasidic experience that is not really... Oh, approachable, shall we say, to a general audience, yet what they were able to do was um, universalise this uh, this subject matter and the, the musical itself as a form helps to do that. I mean, you put a very catchy, great song to something and uh, it really helps um, an audience be able to uh, connect with the film and connect with what's being said in the storyline. And they're very, very identifiable songs from um, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, I think most people, even young pre- people, would probably know them. Um, they're just handed down as well in sort of um, people's households, you know. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the thing about this is, you know, uh, and Lee, Lee and I have, were talking about this, it is really a feeling, uh, showing a experience of a group of people or a certain ethnic group of people over an entire generations of lifetime. And, and that's another um, plus for this storytelling, why it's so good, because it does manage to encapsulate the Jewish experience in a way through showing a particular circumstance in Russia, but showing this kind of continuity of being pushed off land or being constantly, you know, the pariahs wherever they are. And, and then at the end, it's really when they do all have to leave again. Um, you see Mottle, for example, he's got his sewing machine now and he's going to New York. You know Mottle's going to be successful because that was the slipstream that the Jews came in on in New York was the rag trade. And so it's a film that sort of creates this connection with people without dumbing down. Like it works on your knowledge of history and what happens. And and this is what I find remarkable as as well, through telling the experience of the Jews, now it is so 
so relevant because it's another refugee experience film and it shows this idea where people are the they're reticent to leave their homes people don't want to leave homes there was a lot of pointing at the Jews of you know um, that they didn't leave quickly enough and that during you know the holocaust um, there were some accusations of that sort of thing well you don't people don't leave their home easily so the fact that when you do have these mass people movements I think this film really gives a sense of what it is for people to have to leave their home. And in the Jewish experience as well, the comedy, the way that they even make jokes when they had to, you know, they had to leave their home. This idea of we've got to laugh about it or we're going to cry, this idea of survival. Um, so it's quite, you know, and it's all told through Topol, who's the, um, plays the Tevier character and is, you know, a very much loved person himself and was sort of seen as one of the first Israeli, you know, um, global world recognised actors. Um, and it's a hard role because he does have to, he plays the patriarchal head of the family and he has to make these decisions on behalf of his daughters. But you never at any stage feel that you dislike Topol. And he also, I think it's really clever that they start by having him talk to the audience. He talks to God, but because he talks, he breaks that fourth wall and he actually talks directly to the camera right from the start. He kind of pits the audience in that role of God when he continues to speak to God. So he puts this audience in a privileged position. Another way of wonderful storytelling, not talking down to your audience, respecting your audience and putting them in a, a position of authority and superiority in being the voyeurs, the people who are watching this story and listening to it. I just want to jump on um, what you were saying, Emma, about, um, you know, works that are sort of set um, with the with a backdrop that's historical. And I'm a big junkie of musicals that incorporate real-life events into this, you know, the fabric of, an, of a narrative or a fictional narrative. And Fiddler does that beautiful. So it's got the backdrop of the coming Russian revolution and Tsarism, et cetera, and the, the Jews having to flee, you know, their small towns. This fictional town of Anatevka, which could be anywhere in Eastern Europe, I guess. Um, and then you've got shows like Ragtime, which do that. Um, even Annie, which has FDR and stuff, you know, as the background, you know, so there's all these these shows that do that really well, and I think Fiddler works successfully there, um, especially. But also, just going back to also your point about the breaking of the third world wall, and also um, uh, Topol as Tevye being like a Greek chorus character, Norman Jewison sort of had to work out. Um, the problem of transitioning that because he didn't want to lose it. So there's moments where Topol is talking to God or talking to the audience and there's characters waiting to him for him to finish, I guess, which you can do on stage. But how do you do that on film? And there's that beautiful moment, a really heartbreaking moment where he rejects his youngest daughter, the third daughter. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like him doing this, you know, big monologue and then she's just there. And it, and it works because by that time in that film, you, you've, you've bought this, you understand it, you're in for this ride, you know, all through. So it works. So Jewison trusted himself to do that and it works beautifully. And then that rejection sequence is incredible. And then, of course, his lamenting of that, which I think is one of the highlights of the film, which gets underappreciated in the grand scheme of things because I think when people think Fiddler, they think the big numbers like Fiddler or Matchmaker, etc. But when you look at Shava's ballet, which mm. is basically to silhouettes and those strings... Yes. It's magnificent. That's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, and the strings are really mournful there. 
yeah. um, which is really interesting because early on as the fiddler, they're kind of rousing and energized and it's about change and uh, just brilliant stuff. And the chilling, scary moment of the Sarists coming in doing their dance, that intimidating dance, which seems like, oh, yeah, they're drinking and having, it's like it's bullying. It's yes. basically saying you watch yourself, you know, you keep quiet or you have to be dis- you have to disappear. Not um, only that, but it's like a, a phys- the physical feat of just being, you know, in that. I think my, my aunt who was a dancer called them Cossack runs where they, you know, they're crouched down and they sort of do that. I mean, you know, once you get over 40, you're not doing those moves, let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> Jerome I, Robbins, um, chor- yes. chore- choreographer, yeah. Well, um, he, he did the stage show, the film yeah, was done right. by Sammy Bays. Oh, okay. Thanks for that clarification, um, I will say (laughs) we're probably running out of time. Uh, (laughs) We've been as long as the film. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We can't. We don't have time for Intracta, unfortunately. Um, But this is, yeah. I, I was, I was surprised about how much I enjoyed this. Um, uh, And to me, it, I, I, it did seem very old-fashioned as I was watching it. But it's only, it's only as it goes on, particularly towards the end, like you said, that downer ending and. And the the um, reflecting on it afterwards, you realise how actually locked into the times that message was. So it's almost like the perfect, as you were saying before, Lee, it's the perfect bridge between old and new um, Hollywoods and, and old and new musicals in a way. Um, and Jewison's adaptation is really, really spot on in terms of cinematic choices and making it move. Like for three hours, it actually does go by quite quickly um it's often it often struck me as being quite bonkers there's a lot of stuff early on like some, there's a dream sequence in there but even some of the numbers um top Bowl's wonderful performance in which he turns it up to 10 and then breaks the knob off um <laughs> it's very right. it's very it needs fun to be louder he goes to to 11 paul 11 it's like turn it down it won't go any higher um but yes, Fiddler on the Roof is is uh, yeah is definitely a, a landmark of its of its genre. It's now available to stream on Stan or rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, or Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with. Emma Westwood, Lee Gambin, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. All right. Now uh, let's head to uh, the deep south. Removing the ligatures would be painful. Do you want some laudanum? No thanks, kind lady. I'll fall asleep and then just by chance you might cut off my other leg. The Beguiled is the was the 26th feature film directed by Don Siegel, the same year as he directed Dirty Harry. Imprisoned in a Confederate girls' boarding school, an injured Union soldier, played by Clint Eastwood, cons his way in each of the lonely woman's hearts, causing them to turn on each other and eventually on him. Emma, as this was your pick for this evening, you got every time we do one of these, you pick a Don Siegel Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, 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 what? <laughs> What's wrong with me? What was the last one I picked? Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Oh shit, I did too, didn't I? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, what about this haunting slice of Civil War Southern Gothic makes you all hot and bothered? I like a lot about this film. I have to say, in fact, I find that it's got a lot of 
strangely, a lot of similarities to the film that we were mentioning in the intro, you, Paul, and I, about one of our favourite films of that year that Paul didn't realise was this year, The Devils, strangely enough. Um, it feels like, for me, it feels like a very strong feminine uh, feminist statement. And I think that... Um, it can get muddied. Like people may not see it like that because it uh, shows uh, quote unquote neurotic women. But I like the way that it is actually a 360 degree presentation of human beings and the human condition, which um, particularly women and how it shows this man who he comes into their realm and who is an enemy soldier and who feels like um even though he's physically hobbled and probably physically he that's his advantage being a man over a woman but he um feels like he needs to use his wiles and his cunning and his sexuality to play them off each other and how he really um underestimates them let's say and the underestimation goes right down to a 12 13 year old girl who is ultimately where his fate lies and he screws it up. Uh, so it, it just it's just so very powerful. The, the Devils, why I say that it's similar to The Devils is because similarly uh, uh, a neurotic women film or, um, you know, how uh, women are in the, in the Devils, it's around this susceptibility to supernatural possession, witchcraft and evil spirits and so forth. And um, But more about women being sort of in touch with something else that men can't quite quite perceive. Uh, so, yeah. And falling this, under the spell of a charismatic man as well. Yeah, you know. falling under the spell of a – yes, absolutely, falling under the spell of a charismatic man. So I feel like that a lot of people will probably um, judge The Beguiled or know The Beguiled from its remake, which was the Sofia Coppola remake um, a few years ago, which – is a little unfortunate. I'd, I'd really like to encourage people to go back and see this original film because it's incredibly different. And I would actually argue, strangely, ironically, that all the feminist principles were ripped out of the Sofia Coppola um, presentation and instead that character that was played by um, Colin, um, what's his name? Farrell. That Farrell. one, Colin Farrell. Um, was uh, he was basically he was shown as the victim of all these crazy women um, rather than the one that was the really the conniving, the evil one within their midst. And it also had all of the dramatic thrust taken out of it. Like there was the, the scene where, where he actually um, basically gratiates himself to the, the 12, 13-year-old girl is a kiss at the start. He silences her with a kiss so she doesn't give him away to the Confederate soldiers when he's injured in the forest. You're, and, you old, know, that's a you're old enough for kisses. Old enough for, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> it's, confronting, right? It's, it's confronting. confronting. But, you know, this sort of stuff happens, like, in real life, you know, not that we like it. But it happens. But also it added so much to that story because her, it showed that sort of tween, you know, child adolescence where she was intellectually developing, sexually developing and how her rapport with him, once it got to the end and he, in a, in a fit of anger, throws her turtle away, he loses whatever uh, friends he has within that within that school and um, his fate is sealed with mushrooms. 
Yes. <laughs> so yes, I think this is this is a really quite uh, a, a crazy, fun piece of storytelling, but also quite deep. Um, it does also have a a. a Black Maid, who is taken out of the Sophia Coppola version, she felt that, I think uh, Sophia Coppola's argument was that she couldn't, she didn't feel like she could speak for that woman and she didn't want to put her in there. But that character, I think, is a really strong character in this film because she's the only adult woman who isn't subject to his charms. And he tries to, like, he's really wily, the Eastwood character. He says to her something about, oh, we're both slaves or something and she says but I can run to him and you know <laughs> there's just these great great lines um so yeah I, I really wanted to talk about this because I was hoping people would go back and see it if they've seen the Coppola film maybe have an idea about it and can contrast and compare because I believe Paul you hadn't seen this before I had not no Coppola, yeah you saw the Coppola one first and I was not a fan of the Coppola version so yeah, I was delighted. Who are these people who'd go to the Coppola one before this one? Like, who are these people? Anyway, <laughs> I just want to jump on um, going back to your thing about conf- confronting imagery and Pamela and Ferdin doing that kiss scene. So Pamela and Ferdin was actually in talks to play Reagan McNeil in The Exorcist a couple of years later. And um, later in, you know, adult years, she said, thank God she didn't do it because it would have been way too confronting for her to do. And this scene, and that one scene with Clint Eastwood is, to me, far more confronting than anything Reagan does. <laughs> and that's a, yeah. that's a <laughs> That's a big call. But, um, right at the start of the movie too. Yeah. So yeah. Right yeah. And also um, you've got to credit Pamela Ferdin for all her amazing animal activism. She was someone who championed the rights of animals like coyotes and stuff. But also she was the voice of Fern in Charlotte's Web two years later, which was a film that actually contributed to a lot of young people questioning the eating of meat. Very interesting. Anyway, which linked it to her animal liberation stuff. But the beguiled for me just quickly um, sits in that beautiful um, canon of what I like to call the, the kept man syndrome horror film, which kind of has a lot of legacy, you know, throughout film history. But when you think of something like Sunset Boulevard, um, Sweet Bird of Youth, then later things like, you know, Misery and um, That Cold Day in the Park, etc., those wonderful films about sort of, I guess, quote-unquote psychotic, demented women or sexually frustrated women who keep a man and, you know, basically manipulate them and use them. Angel, ba- uh, uh, Angel Baby does that with um, Mercedes McCambridge keeping George Hamilton etc but Geraldine Page I mean she's the queen of this movie for me and she's just fantastic and I love, fell in love with her as a kid seeing her in Hondo um, a woman that really stands her guard to John Wayne um, and just you know there's a great scene where she actually cruises him and it's like that's something you never really see but there's this really interesting amazing trajectory of her career where she played these kind of really strong um uh, empowered self-possessed women uh whether you think of sweet bird of youth or even right down to something uh, when she played villains even in disney's the rescuers late in the 70s voicing that character the madame medusa character but her performance in this as this kind of woman that you know keeps eastward you know kept <laughs> captive is just fantastic and also the sexual repression and the the you know the south america's um love affair with the south in film in a through a filmic lens and marrying it with the southern gothic sensibilities which is this this film um which has that kind of really beautiful rich history but also a dark history and an ugly one so there's there's all that sort of stuff in there and then also the picturesque elements to the the swamplands and stuff you know, juxtaposed with the brutality of it. And also a lot of um, things to come later really owe a lot to the beguiled. Um, and I think, you know, I mentioned misery. You can't really disconnect from mis- well, 
the beguiled when you see misery. But yeah, I think everything about it, Clint on top of his game. And it's funny that the same year you mentioned, yeah, play Misty for me, yeah. which is once again, Clint terrorized by a psychotic by woman, woman. Yeah. <laughs> which is great. But yeah, no, big fan of the beguiled, magnificent film, beautiful, beautiful looking and yeah, Seagull just master. And beautiful atmosphere as well. I'm I'm actually and and tapping into the the that that dark past with the photos that the film starts and ends. Oh, on. that's and a magnificent start. I yeah. think those illustrations are wonderful. And then the actual image from the film starts in sepia, like it's one of the photos, and it fits in perfectly. And it's all like this is all part of this tradition. That's just of, a, of such a great contextualization um, to use just illustrations over over credits it's it's so powerful and if you notice you'll see that the women actors have a separate card to the male actors so they're literally separated out mm. which is quite powerful in itself it's it's a film about it's a battle of the sexes film it's, it's interesting though you wonder you you sometimes wonder if it's like an accidental feminist film in some ways because like <laughs> I, I don't see don siegel or clint eastwood as particularly feminist filmmakers no. or like their careers have not engendered this and uh, there was a quote from from Siegel that was something about the Beguiled was about the way women seduce men or something, and <laughs> and it was and it was just this kind of like what? Because I see this movie as Eastwood is a serpent, like yeah. he is he is the snake that comes into this little Garden of Eden to corrupt everybody. Like he is the corruptible element, and he's so it's like, a monster in the house. Yeah, he is. He absolutely is, and he's so uh, cunning about it. And, and he's so been managed to he manages to penetrate it by being injured, and um, these women taking him in, le- legitimately taking him into care for him. Yeah, um, and he against is an their enemy judgment. soldier. He's an enemy soldier, and then he he starts working against them. They are in a, their own little fortress, like they're literally surrounded by enemies. Like even the Confederate soldiers, like under the banner of war, they're under the threat of rape. I think there's um, mm. there's a a, a word a line where one of the younger girls says. Um, we'll all be raped. Like if the, the Yankees win, we'll all be raped. Like it's mentioned, rape is mentioned quite a few times in the film. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the, the quote from Siegel was, the ba- the film was based around the basic desire of women to castrate men. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was written um, by, it was based on a book written by uh, Thomas P. Cullinan, I think yes. it was. Yep, yeah, correct. so it's by a man as well. It would be called The Painted Devil or A Painted mm. Devil. It would be interesting to read that book. I haven't. But, like, this is all male filmmakers, mm. and you're quite, you're possibly quite right, Paul. They are accidental messages that come out through films, but I think it's quite strong. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think it, I agree it's much more feminist than the Coppola version. The Coppola version is 10 minutes shorter than this and somehow feels half an hour longer. I don't know how that works. <laughs> but there's... Yeah, and I think you're right. I think where in that film it felt like the characters were being moved by the plot, not by their own impulses. In this one, everything's so organic and the actors are all terrific, including Elizabeth Hartman, who, of course, um, had a, her life had a very sad end. She um, took her own life in the mid-'80s. Um, but, uh, yeah, but there's so much, so much to dig about this. Yeah, I, I was just, I was fully... Uh, and, and, and that claustropho- that that atmosphere does become quite claustrophobic as well, and it's beautifully done. Again, we're out of time. I have to move on, but um, 
So if you are looking to watch The Beguiled and watch the Sofia Coppola one from your imagination, it is now available. Don Siegel's The Beguiled is now available to rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Emma Westwood, Lee Gambin, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Tonight we're spotlighting on films turning 50, the third of which we're looking at now. Everybody, this is Henry Graham. This is Harriet Storch. Both, of course, you know. Hello, Henry. Mr. and Mrs. Sims, Tooth and Roggy. They're here from Geneva on home leave. This is Lucy Sylvester. And our neighbors, Dr. and Mrs. Daryl Hitler, John Sylvester and Freddie, of course, you know. Excuse me, you're not by any chance related to the Boston Hitlers. No, we're from Glencoe. Are you of the Boston Hitlers? I love it so much. God, I just had to start laughing when that line came up again. <laughs> the Boston Hitlers. <laughs> <laughs> A New Leaf was the first feature film directed by Elaine May. Self-absorbed playboy Henry Graham, played by Walter Matthau, whose only interest in identity comes from being rich, is suddenly bankrupt. In a, in a deal with his reluctant uncle, Henry borrows $50,000, which he has just six weeks to repay or he must forfeit everything he owns. All he needs to do is marry a rich heiress with no family whom he then plans to kill. He finds, said heiress, in the most klutzy person imaginable, Henrietta Lau, played by Elaine May. Um, as this was my pick for tonight, um, I am so incredibly taken with this. I, I legitimately think this is one of the 10 best comedies of the 70s. I, every time I see it, it reveals more to me. Um, I, I just think it's dazzling. Um, Henry ranks above, among Matow's best performances. Seeing him play against type as this elitist, almost foppish, like I don't think of Walter Matow as an elite fop, but here he manages to pull it off. Um, this he came from poverty in real life. He was came from a very poor background, so this is not surprise me at all. Exactly. As this trust fund playboy who is so terrified of facing a life of poverty, um, he goes around to all of his landmarks, like saying all of his rich restaurants he went to and his tailor saying goodbye to them, which is great. Um, upon the advice of his gentleman's gentleman, um, I love that his, his gentleman's gentleman tells him he's keeping <laughs> keeping traditions alive that were long dead before he was born. Um, it's But all of this really, though, is the roaring engine powering this entire enterprise is Elaine May. Um, who is a, who wrote the screenplay based on a short story by Jack Ritchie called The Green Heart. Um, she wrote the screenplay, directed, and stars as Henrietta. And being a writer-director star was an incredibly rare thing in 1971. Like, not, like... Leave aside, like, like even for guys, there wasn't that many. Woody Allen was reasonably new to the scene. There Jerry were, Lewis, probably Jerry Lewis, yeah. yeah, it was Wells, uh, you know, Chaplin, Keaton, you know, a few other silent comics. But since that silent age, it'd be, yeah, uh, it, um, Jerry Lewis was one of the few, and Woody Allen had just started. And Elaine basically, um, was going to just write the screenplay and for a quarter of the fee um, negotiated herself into the directing uh, the directing role and then the role of Henrietta. Um, Carol Channing was originally considered. Um, and she is like this, her, this beautiful, brilliant performance 
as the heart of the movie as well, that runs the gamut from uh, stunning wordplay to hilarious physical comedy. Um, she, but she's this doe-eyed innocent who is actually fiercely and subtly determined when she wants something. Like she is just, she's a... <laughs> Um, she wants him to be a history professor. Exactly. <laughs> it gets away, you know. Um, and she cracks us up right until she kind of breaks her heart. And it's a hell of a showcase for her as a writer, director, and an actor. And as well, we got far too few of these. I'm I'm just so glad we have this one. Um and the 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 way this plays havoc with your feelings and sympathies in regard to these characters is so incredibly deft. Um, we're sort of you know, simultaneously chucking, chuckling at Henry being so awful, but at the same time sincerely loving her and hoping he doesn't harm a hair on her clumsy head. Um, yeah, it's it's just brilliant. I can't say enough great things about it. Um, I know we've only got like a minute and a half to go. <laughs> Quick thoughts. Well, I think that, yeah, I, I concur, Paul. Um, Elaine May's a genius and um, her rapport with Walter Matthau is quite incredible in this film. I think that he does bring a lot to her performance. No doubt she chose him for a reason. Um, it was a big year for him, 1971 as well, because he was not only in Koch, which we talked about <laughs> briefly at the start, but this film and also in Plaza Suite, the Neil Simon. So it's similar to Eastwood, he was in multiple films. Um, and he has plays that curmudgeonly, you know, pissed off character, <laughs> like resigned though, that kind of, that level of resignation. He's not a likeable cam- character at all, but yet somehow, somehow they create a love story Um that you you just ride along with them. You want them to get together in in the end. You you want him to save her from the rapids. And uh, similar similar to another film from 1971, same same but different. Harold and Maud, mm. where it has that coupling of you know a young man, a 20 year old man with a 80 year old woman, and it's romantic and it's beautiful. It shouldn't be. This film shouldn't be romantic and beautiful, but it just is. Uh, and it comes out through her beautiful dialogue. Like there's there's that a wonderful scene at the start where um, uh, Henry, Walter Matthau's attorney, tells him um, that he's broke, and just the the, the language <laughs> and the because he's kind of doesn't understand. But please just cash my check. It's a masterclass in comedy writing, and it's subtle. It's not heavy handed. It's not broad comedy. Um, which a lot of comedy was sort of broad through the 60s and 70s, but this, yeah, beautiful. I just want to sort of champion Elaine May's uh, uncredited work. Um, this is a lot of invisible labour she did in writing. So she was an amazing, amazing dramaturg and script doctor and wrote, you know, uh, contributed, contributed sorry, to scripts galore um, from Tootsie to Mike Nichols' Wolf. You know, her work with Mike Nichols, incredible. Just an amazing woman, incredible writing and incredible input and just beefing up certain characters that had, um, you know, a bit of a displacement in the uh, process of writing. So I think that's really good. Just very quickly, she was a long-term partner of Stanley Donnan. Yes. In real life, yeah. Yes, yes. So we lost. Yes, which is notable. Triple R. 
You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with me, Paul Anthony Nelson, and our very special guests, Emma Westwood and Lee Gambon, where we reviewed Fiddler on the Roof, currently available on Stan and available to rent on YouTube, Google Play, and iTunes. Uh, we talked about The Beguiled, which is also available to rent or buy on YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play, and A New Leaf, which is available to rent or buy via YouTube, Amazon, and Google Play. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 